0: Well, you can open your Bibles this morning to Psalm 129. It's a psalm that that speaks about persecution, affliction, uh, oppression. And throughout the history of the church, God's people... The history of God's... uh, I'm sorry, let's start again. The, The history of God's people has always been that of persecution. From the very first brothers, Cain who killed Abel... To the time in which the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. Israel has always known, the people of God has always known times of persecution and and affliction. Jeremiah was thrown in prison for preaching the truth. Ezra and Nehemiah were opposed when they sought to rebuild this city. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. And Jesus himself, the greatest prophet of all, was crucified. You say, why is it that the, the church has always faced these matters of persecution? It's because men love darkness rather than they love light. And followers of Jesus ought to expect the same. Men love darkness rather than light. And we ought to expect persecution to come upon us as well. The followers of Jesus always have. Peter and John thrown into prison for their preaching. Stephen was stoned to death. Over the next few weeks, we're going to get to chapter 7 at the end, where Stephen will be stoned because of preaching the truth. James, the brother of John, was put to death with a sword. Paul spent many years in prison. The early church spent some 300 years of intense persecution. Ignatius of Antioch was fed to wild beasts. Polycarp was burned at the stake. Blandina was tortured without mercy. The early Christians had to worship in catacombs, in the tombs, because the Romans would arrest them any other place, but they didn't like the places of the dead. Countless believers were martyred during the first three centuries, so much so that Tertullian said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We have so much blood here that the church is just growing and growing and growing. And that it did. So eventually, in 311 A.D., there was an edict of toleration that was set forth that said, "Okay, rather than trying to squash these Christians, which it wasn't working anyway, let's tolerate them. But the edict of toleration hardly ended Christian persecution any more than the end of the Civil War ended any racial discrimination we have in the United States. So for more years and more years, Christians faced persecution. And Throughout our history, the church has always known persecution. That's why Paul told Timothy, anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's why Paul said in Acts chapter 14.22 to the early churches, the young churches, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Tribulations, persecutions, hardships all go with the territory of following Jesus. Now, there are blessings, but there are difficulties as well. Many people who become Christians doesn't give them a better life. gives them a more difficult life. The Middle Ages were times of persecution. With The little pockets who would raise up against the Catholic Church would be persecuted. The, the time of the Reformation was a time of great persecution. Roman Catholics hated the Protestants. And persecution continues to this day. There are many, many, many books you can read about saints who've been persecuted. On my vacation, one of the books I had a chance to read was this book written by Sabrina Wormbrand called um, The Pastor's Wife. Now, I've had this book on our shelf for years, um, but I never read it because I thought that The Pastor's Wife was a book for pastors' wives, like a book for Avon, or Maggie, or Karen, just like the the one book that you should read to kind of give you an, an idea about it. But but it's really not. What what it is? It tells the story of the persecutions that Sabrina Wormbrand endured for following Christ. She and her husband were Jews, born in Romania, converted in 1938, just before the outbreak of World War II. And throughout World War II, they they began to learn about the church and they evangelized um, the German soldiers. They evangelized in Romania. They preached in the bomb shelters. They saved Jewish children from the ghetto. They adopted, I think it was six children they adopted, Um, but they knew hard times. During the war, Richard was in and out of prison for weeks at a time because of his ministry. Um, all of Sabina's family was killed by Nazis. Their adopted children all sank in a boat as they were fleeing the country. It was a hard time for all of them, but things really got difficult at the end of, uh, at the end of World War II. Because it, it was bad enough when the Germans were coming in, but it was super bad when now Romania became communist and invited Russian communists to come and lead the way. And so millions of Russian communists came into the, the country, took over the government. At one point, they sponsored a, a congress of cults in which every confession, every religion, whether that's Islam, whether that's pagan, whether it's Catholic, whether it's Protestant, every all religions were invited here to this congress. They were told by the communists that you were going to have full religious freedom that you can expect under the communist regime. But... The Wormbrands knew better. They knew the church would be lulled into acceptance and then the blow would fall. They knew that communism was set up and determined to destroy faith and to destroy religion but to the shame of 4,000 bishops, pastors, priests, and rabbis, and mullahs of all religions and all faiths, they stood and spoke about how happy they were with the arrangement because you had the the communist military right there. And so they, they feigned happiness. They said the state could count on the church if the church could count on the state. And everyone was glad. And this was being broadcast on the radio all around Romania. And Sabina writes, and I just read from... This book, The Congress of Cults, one of my favorite passages, says these men, these pastors, spoke out of fear for their families, for their jobs, for their salaries. They could have at least kept silent instead of filling the air with flattery and lies. It was as if they spat in Christ's face and I could feel that Richard was boiling. So I told him, what was already in his heart and said, will you not wash the shame from the face of Christ? And Richard knew what would happen. He says, if I speak, you will lose a husband. And at once I replied, oh, for wives like this at Rock Valley Bible Church. It was not my courage, she said, but given to me for the moment, she said, I don't need a coward for a husband. So he put his ticket in whatever got to speak at the microphone and Richard said that when the children of God meet the angels also gather there to hear about the wisdom of God. So it was the duty of all present not to praise earthly powers that come and go but to glorify the God and creator and Christ the Savior who died for us on the cross and as he spoke the whole atmosphere in the hall began to change my heart. Filled with joy, Sabina writes, to think of this message going out to the entire country. And suddenly the minister of the cults, Berdusia was his name, he jumped to his feet. Your right to speak is withdrawn, he shouted. And he bawled orders from the dace to minions. Richard ignored him and went on. The audience began to applaud and he was saying what they had all wanted to say. And Berdusia bellowed, cut that microphone! And the audience shouted him down Pastoral, pastoral, they chanted rhythmically. The pastor, the pastor. From a pastor, Richard became the pastor. And at home, his mother had heard everything on the radio. When the broadcast was interrupted, she imagined that she would never see her son again. Because from that moment on, Richard was a marked man as he defied the government as he spoke of Christ rather than earthly rulers. Soon afterwards, Richard was arrested, spent eight and a half half years in prison, where he was brutally tortured by the secret police and interrogated. He was let out for three years, only to go back again to face a 25-year sentence. He served more than five years of that sentence, and then eventually was, was bought out by the Norwegian missionary to the Jews, and the Hebrew Christian Alliance who paid10,000 dollars, ransomed to the communist government, and then he was let free. He was reluctant to leave, but people kept encouraging, him, "So you be our voice outside this country, you be our voice." So he went outside the country, founded um, voice of the martyrs. It's really bore out of 14 years of torture in prison because of his faith in Christ, his refusal to be quiet. And uh, he wrote this book, Tortured for Christ, Richard Wormbrand. These are like, this is his testimony, this is her testimony. And um, they read pretty rough. You can't, you can't get them because basically what they did, as soon as they got out, they just told about their experiences. And so it's just, imagine if you just told about your experiences in prison, in Romania, and the difficulties, and then they're kind of written down and put in a book. So different things are, are come up at, at different times, but they are very good reads. They're helpful for us. Um, because it gives us a perspective of Christianity that we may not, might not have. And in fact, at persecution.com, the voice of the martyrs, the, uh, the organization that they found is doing a, a great job. And uh, one of the things I was contacted by them recently and said that you could buy uh, as many of these books as you want for a dollar. So what I did is I just purchased enough for every family in the church. And on the back table, I have one of these books for every family in the church if you would like to read the book. So today, my message, I'm going to kind of promote this book and just say, hey, this has got something. i got nine quotes. I've read one already. i to read nine quotes, Lord willing. if I have time, Steffi asked me, Dad, is your sermon long today? I said, yes. Said, because uh, Gage whispered to me right before I came up, he said, Was it kind of nice to have a month to prepare your sermon? And I said, Yes, Gage, but it's got some problems. And here's the problem. We got so much talking about persecution. I want to promo this book. I want all you to go out and, and really have a heart to to want to to read it. Because Sabina herself tells of her three years in prison and, and she spent the days in hard labor here's here's what she said about her days and this is she didn't went from different projects this one was to build a canal and rather using big machines they built it by hand Said we were building an embankment men and women together I had to keep filling a wheelbarrow with earth each time the barrow was full a male prisoner had to push it 200 yards and then run it up with a sharp incline to the parapet of the dam he tipped out the earth and ran back for more. The men's task was harder than ours, but after the first few barrel loads, I staggered whenever I tried to lift the heavy shovel of earth over the side. Each gang had a brigade chief with several helpers to check how much work he could do. The norm required could be anything to eight cubic meters a day. If after tremendous efforts, we fulfilled the norm, it was raised the next day by so many barrel loads. And if we failed to fulfill it, we were punished. Just this un, unachievable goal of hard labor all day. And that was just one time. Another time she told about how, how they had to move these boulders kind of into the water. And it was freezing weather. And her hands were cold. And she didn't have much by way of coat or shoes. And just was, was tormented day and night. She spent nights. That was how she spent the day. She spent the nights in rat infested. Overcrowded cells. At one point, she said that cell 4 had room for maybe 30 people. By Christmas in 1950, there were 80. You couldn't even move without trading on bodies lying in the aisle. And how the air stunk. On Sundays, the days in which they hoped for rest, they had indoctrination classes. Every Sunday was indoctrination day when they had hoped for Rest. In the afternoon, the chief marched in the, the, into the assembly as they told them about all the different things that they would do. Here's what the uh, attendant would say. Outside of prison, everyone now is communist, she explained. Only you persist in this religious folly and we mean to educate you out of it. The party is in power now and it knows best You're not here in prison. I won't even hear the word. You're in an institution for re-education. You'll be building your own future happiness, working for future generations, and by passing the norms of work laid down, you may well hasten your own liberty as a rehabilitated citizen. And then, he said, I don't condemn those who participate in these things. She said, "Um, few resisted. And those who did were not unaffected by these indoctrination hours, which went on every Sunday at almost every camp on the canal. Some of the rubbish they threw at you was bound to stick. I couldn't applaud at the meetings. Everyone said, just pretend. Does it matter? Is it worth a beating? But when I heard God and Fatherland slandered and saw beauty trampled in the dirt, I couldn't. There were always people standing in the back of the hall, and I buried myself among them, but I didn't escape. Someone reported me, and in the evening, I was marched up into the commandant's office. Her eyes were unwinking under the peaked cap. I have information that you failed to clap during this afternoon's lecture and re-education class, Wormbrand. All your behavior here has shown you to be a counter-revolutionary force, unamendable to proper re-education. She mouthed the ritual phrases and then licked her lips. We've tried to be good to you. Now other methods will be used. I wasn't allowed to return to the hut that night. I marched the guard room, marched to the guard room and put into a carcer. Now I don't know what a didn't know what a carcer was, but she describes it. She says this a carcer was a word to freeze the blood. A box six feet high and two feet wide lined with spikes. It was a common punishment in canal camps. There, after a day's work, you had to stand without moving the whole night to avoid being impaled. And the next day, you went back to work again with a good chance, if you were tired of being ordered back to the carcer that night for not working quickly enough. Kind of gives you an idea of of three years of what it is that she endured and this book will give you perspective on what some Christians have endured and the best thing is is that God is faithful and sustained her to give her even a sweet spirit as you as you read this book because there is something about remembering the persecutions of believers that lead us to worship the Lord in a greater way in fact that's what Psalm 129 is all about it's about Israel remembering their troubles that is the title of my message this morning, Remember Your Troubles. This is a song of ascent, One of the songs that Israel sang as they went up to Jerusalem to worship. I want to read for you Psalm 129, a song of ascent. Many times they have persecuted me from my youth up. Let Israel now say. Many times they have persecuted me from my youth up. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They lengthened their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut into the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like grass upon the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand or the binder of sheaves his bosom. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Derek Kidner, a commentary, writes about these words. Whereas most nations tend to look back on what they have achieved, Israel, in this psalm, reflects here on what she has survived. And indeed, that's what Israel is doing here. just, Just thinking about how many times they've been persecuted. My first point comes from these first three first first three verses. First verse, right? They persecuted us. Or if you're reading this morning from the ESV or the King James, you could easily say they afflicted us. That's how that word's translated there. Or if you're reading from the NIV, you could say they oppressed us. Each of these are getting at the same thing. The author's thinking about the history of the Jewish people and said, we've always been persecuted. We've been oppressed. We've been afflicted. From my youth up. That means from the early days of our nation up till this present day. And mind you, this is very prophetic as a psalm, through till today. We have been afflicted and persecuted and oppressed. Beginning with Abraham, Abraham said God said to Abraham, I'll make you a great nation. Genesis twelve two. But it wasn't easy with this great nation. Difficulties, trials from the start. Abraham feared the Egyptians. Isaac feared the inhabitants of Gerar and Jacob feared his father-in-law, Laban. So began the history of Israel. They've known trouble. After Jacob died, these people of Israel then were afflicted with slavery in Egypt. After they were released from slavery, then come the time of the judges where they're constantly harassed from other nations. The king of Mesopotamia harassed them. Israel was in subservience to them for eight years. The sons of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. A king of Canaan oppressed the sons of Israel for 20 years. Midian subjected them for seven years. The Philistines and Ammon crushed and afflicted the sons of Israel for 18 years. And in Samson's day, all they knew was conflicts with the Philistines. In the days of Saul, it was conflicts with the Philistines. The day of David, conflict with the Philistines. Only at the end of David's life was there any semblance of peace. But soon after that, Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians, Judah taken into captivity by the Babylonians, and Jerusalem was utterly destroyed. She became a ghost town, worse than Detroit, everyone gone. Listen to what Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations, the first chapter, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. The roads of Zion are in mourning because no one comes to the appointed feasts and all her gates are desolate. All Her Majesty has departed from the daughter of Zion. Just We've been crushed. There's nobody left. Such has been the plight of, of Israel and Jerusalem. The language of Jeremiah is appropriate. Here to verse 3. The plowers plowed upon my back. They lengthened their furrows. It's a picture of a, of a man on his back. And he's taking a plow, just like a farmer would in the field, and just kind of going up and down his back. Digging grooves into his back. Probably figurative of just being whipped or scourged. But this is figurative of Israel being a person, being whipped and scourged and beaten and and trodden down for centuries of their existence. Israel felt this. Driven from the city. They're driven away by the Babylonians to be enslaved. Listen to Jeremiah's words again. Lamentations 1. Different verses. How Jerusalem became like a widow who once was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a forced laborer. She's been in prison now. Forced laborer in Babylon. Judah has gone into exile under affliction and under harsh servitude. Her adversaries have now become her masters. That's what Jeremiah said. They were enslaved. They were mocked. In fact, turn over to Psalm 137. You get a flavor of how they were mocked in Babylon. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept. When we remembered Zion, that is Jerusalem, and, and everything happening there, the people of God, with God Himself. Upon the willows, in the midst of it, we hung our harps. For there our captors demanded us of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion! In other words, they were in captivity. They described their captors with these words. They were tormentors. They were captors. And they're saying, hey, sing us one of those festival songs. You know when you dance around and sing around like that? Sing us one of those songs. They said they were mocked. They wept. They'd already hung up their harps. There were no songs of joy in those days. Yet Babylon, their captives demanded songs from them. They were persecuted and afflicted and oppressed in those days. Another picture of captivity comes in Daniel 3. You don't need to turn there, but I just say three names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you know fully what happened there. Nebuchadnezzar built this large golden image. He made the decree that everyone who hears the sound of the music is to fall down and worship the golden image. Forced idol worship is what took place in Israel. And those refused were to be thrown into the furnace a blazing fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego heard the music and refused to bow to this idol. And they were called before Nebuchadnezzar. Said, "Okay, let's get this straight. Music plays, you bow down. The music played, they didn't bow down, and thus they were thrown into the furnace. Only a miraculous deliverance by the Lord saved them. But that's persecution. That is affliction. That is oppression." But things were no different even after the exile, after they were back in the land, after they're back in in Jerusalem. Remember the story of Esther? Think about how afflicted the Jews were at that time. The story tells of how providentially she became queen of Persia. It tells also the story of Haman, the Agagite, who hated the Jews. And, and, And Haman wasn't just alone. There certainly was a sediment throughout all Persia hating the Jews. And so he coerced the king to make a decree against the Jews. Esther 3.13 Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces. And this is, by the way, the most powerful nation in the world at this time. All the provinces as far as Persia reaches. To destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, and to seize their possessions and plunder letter went out. Anyone could kill any Jew, take any property they have on this particular day. Providentially, Esther was the queen. She approached the king to intercede on behalf of the Jews everywhere. She had a feast with the king and with Haman sitting right there and listened to the dramatic scene in Esther 7, verses 3-6. through Queen Esther replied to the king, "'If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given to me as my petition and my people as my request.'" For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Then the king Ahazuerus asked Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who would presume presume to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman became terrified before the king and the queen, and soon afterwards Haman was hanged on the very gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, a Jew, Esther's uncle. The story of Esther is the story of God's providential care over the nation Israel, but it does give you an insight into how persecuted, afflicted, and oppressed the people of Israel were. But that leads us to the second point of Psalm 129. You can turn back there. Yes, they persecuted us, verses 1 through 3. But secondly, God has protected us. Verse 4. Actually, there's a little phrase at the end of verse 2, and then it picks up in verse 4. Verse 2, Many times they have persecuted Me from My youth up, yet they have not prevailed against Me. And that's the good news of the psalm. Yes, the persecutions have been real. Yes, the afflictions have come upon us. Yes, the oppression has been great, but our God is greater still. The Bible tells the story of a, of a persecuted people, the people of Israel. But the Bible also tells the story of a protected people, the people of Israel. Listen, even though Israel was knocked down, they're never knocked out. God sustained them. They're, they're like those little Weebles tall, dolls. They were popular when I was a kid. You guys know what I'm talking about, children? The Weebles dolls. They're heavy on the bottom and you... You knock them down and they go like this and they come up. That's the story of the Bible. You just take a weeble toy. You kind of knock it over and it comes back up. You knock it over, it comes back up. Knock it over, it comes back up. Because that's Israel always coming back up. Always the people of God coming back up. Why? Because God has protected us. God has sustained us. The mere fact that Jesus was able to come from the root of David to the lost sheep of the house of Israel is a testimony of God's sustaining grace to Israel. The the fact that God kept them that long. And the mere fact that Israel is back in the land as a nation today is a testimony of God's sustaining grace to Israel. They've been scattered for nearly 2,000 years, since A.D. 70. And now, in 1948, Jewish nations reestablish their back in the land. Efforts to extinguish them as a people have fallen short. The Holocaust sought to rid the world of Jewish people. Instead, God used that to establish a nation. I do believe that's in fulfillment here. Verse 4, the Lord is righteous. He has cut into the cords of the wicked. See, God promised Abraham, I will make you a great nation and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And you just look at history. In the broadest of terms, those who have sought for the welfare of the Jews have been blessed people. And those who have sought harm to the Jewish people have been cursed. And God has set matters straight because He's righteous. All all this injustice done to Jewish people, He has restored and He's retaliated. He has demolished His enemies. Yet a cloud still remains over Israel today because they are an unbelieving people. They have rejected their Messiah. They have sought their own ways. And so even though they're back in the land, it's not as if God's full blessing is upon them in any way. They won't know the full blessing until the day in which they believe in Jesus and Messiah. They won't know the end of verse 4 until they fully embrace Christ as their Savior. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 26, that all Israel will be saved someday. I believe that means that what's going to happen in Jerusalem, in Israel, is there going to be an outbreak and people are going to come to faith in Jesus. And Jerusalem and Israel, which is a Jewish nation now, will become a Christian nation as Zion is lifted up, the highest of all mountains. I do believe that that will take place someday. Massive Christian revival. But the righteousness of God today, though, requires His hands heavy against Jerusalem in the present day. Hear the cry of Jerusalem in the days of the exile, in the day when she was destroyed. Lamentations 1 again, verse 18. The Lord is Righteous. For I have rebelled against His command. That is, Jerusalem speaking. God is righteous. I've rebelled against His command. That's why I have been flattened. And here we have the Lord is righteous. He's cut into the cords of the wicked. When Jerusalem turns back in a right way, all His enemies will be shattered. Yet, the promise of verse 4 does come to us today to those who believe in Jesus. Those who believe and trust in the Lord will know the protection of God. First Peter says it this way. 1 Peter one verses three through seven. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Blessed be God, because He's the one that caused us to be born again to the resurrection from the dead. Through the resurrection of Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, reserved in heaven for you. Anyone who believes in Christ has this inheritance in heaven that's reserved for us. And it says, 1 Peter 1, verse 5, we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That we can anticipate that, that God is going to carry us through. Philippians 1, 6, He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus And this is in the context, 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 of trials in this in in what in in this glory of heaven, the day when God smashes all of his enemies, when he brings us into his city, heavenly Jerusalem, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a context of trials. And in the midst of trials that you're facing, various multicolored, multifaceted trials, you have this place in heaven reserved for you and God has protected you to bring you to that place. He's going to crush your enemies to bring you to that place. Verse 4 says, He's cut in two the cords of the wicked. Believers in Jesus are protected by the power of God. And that's what Sabrina Wormbrand experienced. She's facing trials that came upon her in prison. And by the way, it is it is good to, to think about her life. I think about Psalm one hundred and twenty nine. And the call here is to remember the troubles of Israel. They do remember the troubles that Abraham had or that Moses had or that the people, the judges had. And just in a broadest spectrum, they could have or they could have remembered any specific trouble that any specific person had. So likewise, our call today from Psalm 129 is to remember the troubles and the persecutions of the of the church. That's 2000 years of trouble. Now, we could go through in a broad level all these troubles that they had or what I'm choosing to do today to promote this book and her life and her testimony is to say, let's just pick one person and let's just look at how she was persecuted and afflicted and oppressed. And may we similarly then be encouraged from how God has sustained her because that's the whole point. Verse 2, many times they have persecuted me for my youth up, but they have not prevailed against me. And Sabina Wormbrand saw that all these afflictions and all these difficulties, they didn't prevail against her. Rather, she saw the protecting power of God upon her life. That's what she said. In prison, even at the worst times, we'd seen God's hand at work. Even when it was bad, we'd seen God's hand. This is Psalm 129. They have not prevailed against me. We came to know that although we suffered... God would not leave us. We could trust Him. So a vital part of work in our underground church, now that we're out, now that she's able to write, was to teach people this. And with prison background, it was easier to win their trust. And then she goes on to even speak about the frustration she had with these pastors who weren't in prison, but they only had book knowledge. These Lutheran professors, pastors, young pastors, did their best, but they could only teach what they knew from books. Based on other books written centuries ago, but she says, not everything the books taught fit the lessons that I learned in prison. And one thing she said is that being in prison, she knew that God was real because God was there and pulled through on many occasions for her. And, and how difficult, how different this was than the political prisoners. Because she was heaped in with a lot of political prisoners. She was a, a Christian prisoner, but there were also some other political prisoners. Uh, uh, criminals as well. And and she said this. She said, um, in 1951, more and more party members came into prison. And these were those who were, were calling the party, who were trumpeting the communist cause. And they were arrested by former comrades. It was pitiful to see their confusion. Fascists, fascists could wallow in contempt and hate. They'd had their day of glory. Christians could love. Their day of glory was to come, but the communist women were lost. They treated the party like a god, and now it was like watching a massacre of the innocents. So they, they suffered more than people like myself who were ready for what was to come, who had seen what sort of regime was over us from the start. In other words, you have communist people who believed in the, in the communist communal, like, hey, this is going to be really good for all of us. And when those people then were disillusioned and placed in prison, it was difficult for them because they were deceived because communism was a God. But the Wormbrand saw it all along. They said, no, no, communism. This is evil and wicked. And they're prepared for the prison. And she knew the sustaining grace of God. The things weren't easy for her. They were hard. But God sustained her and sustained many who who trusted in His Word. I, I love this testimony of a woman that she knew in, uh, in prison. So the communists in prison were sure that they would be shot. They had been ruthless and so ruthlessness would be returned. In the meantime, the loving and the lovable were executed, meaning Christians. The daughter of a high communist official, herself a Christian, learned one evening that she must face the firing squad at midnight. Executions were frequent and death sentences were passed on palty pretexts, often for revenge. And this girl... Before going to meet, quote-unquote, the Midnight Bride, as execution was known, held a last supper of oat, gruel, and water with her cell companions. Calmly, she lifted the earthenware vessel that had contained the food. Soon I shall be earth again, she said, of the same stuff as this vessel. Soon, out of my body, grass will grow, but there's more to death than this. And it is for this that we are on earth to, ter- to tend to our souls regularly while we live. And as a girl was taken out, she raised her voice in the creed. Passing through the vaulted gallery, it echoed from wall to wall. The words were those we say in church. But it was a different creed because she meant every word. She went to death for the one God and she was received into life everlasting. Yes, She died. But God had His hand upon her. They did not prevail against her. They tried to brainwash her. Right? They, they, they tried to change her. But God was with her and helped. It's an example of a sustaining grace of God. And God sustained His people through His Word. I love this testimony. It says, after work, women came to the religious prisoners and asked, and even begged to be told something of what we remembered from the Bible. And the words gave hope and comfort and life. Is the religious people were the light in the prisons, and people came and longed just for help. And here's what she said She said, We had no Bible, we had ourselves hungered for it more than bread. How I wished I'd learned more of it by heart. But the passages we knew, we repeated daily and at night. And when we held vigils for prayer, other Christians like me had deliberately committed long passages to memory, knowing that soon their turn would come for arrest. rest. And they brought riches to prison. While others quarreled and fought, we lay on our mattresses and used the Bible for prayer and meditation and repeated its verses to ourselves through the long nights We learned what newcomers brought and taught them what we knew in this way. An unwritten Bible circulated throughout all of Romania's prisons. Did you catch what she's saying there? She had no Bible. But what she could tell, what she remembered, she could tell. And what they remembered, they could tell. I wonder at Rock Valley Bible Church how much of the Bible we could recall if we were placed in this room for a week or month and had no Bibles and said, okay, start. what what can you tell me? What can you tell me from the Bible? And maybe Virginia, maybe you know something. And maybe Laura, you know something. And maybe Phil knows something. And maybe I know something. And we just start sharing and talking just about what the Bible is and how much it was a life-giving balm to the soul. How we need to study today to be prepared for that day. I just tell you, get in the Word of God. Learn it. And, and, and the Bible may not ever be taken away from us. We may not face prison like she has. But you will face trials. And you will face difficulties. And the more of God's Word you have on your heart, the better it will be to prepare you during the day of trial. And Sabina learned this. During her three years in prison, she learned this. In fact, it was very interesting. They, they tormented her in, in every type of way imaginable. She told her that she to, was told that her husband was dead. She's told just to divorce him because he's long gone. He's not coming back. He's dead. Because he, once once they get divorced, then it caused Richard to lose hope to say, "Hey, your wife divorced you. Look, here are the papers." And and that's a way they destroyed many people in prison. They had they had threats or promises of, "Hey, it's going to be released tomorrow, or we're not." They had one time where they said, you can have some visitors. And um, she, kinda, she didn't, wouldn't really know if she'd have a visitor. But her son, Mahai, who was about, I don't even know, it's kind of hard for the, the time, maybe 12 to 15 years old. Are we 12 to 15 year old kids here? Do we have some of those? Raise your hand. Okay. When Sabina went to prison, Richard was in prison, children left alone. Can you imagine parents leaving your 13 year old, gone, in oppressive communist regime? But God protected her children through her one, her one child, Mahai. I think through a girl, I forget her name. Alice maybe was her name. She was poor. She just kind of took the child in and protected him and helped him and guided him. It was a huge help. But anyway, she had an opportunity to see visitors. And um, this poor Alice got, um, if that was her name, got Mahai, clear three hours away to the prison. And she had a 15-minute... A Talk and dialogue with him. That's all she saw him for all these years, three years. What would you tell your son or daughter in the midst of your three year imprisonment? She didn't know how long she was going to be there, but maybe the last time you'd ever see him or her. What would you say? Here's what Sabina Wormbrand said. She said, we were taken out to another barrack hut near the gates and it was not, of course, the whole day with your families like we had been promised. It was 15 minutes standing in the same room, 10 yards apart, with the guards listening to every word. But when I saw my son, I forgot I was a prisoner and what I looked like. They all lost a lot of weight. They're all emaciated. They're all in old, dirty, tattered clothes. And I simply, with my eyes, I embraced him. Oh, how thin he was and how serious. I gazed at him and he at me and in a flash, the 15 minutes had passed and our emotion wiped out time. We barely spoke, not that it was possible to say anything intimate, 15 feet apart with guards standing right there. I remember that I called across the space that separated us. Mahai, believe in Jesus with all your heart. I gave him the best counsel I could, knowing from my experience in prison, among so many people, old and young, that only Christ can give the hope that lights the darkest place. Is that encouraging? Isn't it encouraging to to think about what what she is saying? And what I've been encouraged with is that she says these things. I'm like, that's everything I believe. That's everything I hope for. And I long for is just believing and trusting in Christ. She's put it in practice in like the nth degree. And so we can trust that Christ is our only hope as well. Are you trusting Christ? Parents, are, are you pressing that upon your children? To say, trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Because you've seen it in your own life. You've seen it in the life of others. You've read saints. Have you seen trusting in Christ is sufficient? I encourage you press it upon your children. Well, my third and final point this morning, and I'll, I'll be quick they persecuted us. Verses one through three, God protected us. Verse four. finally, may God vindicate us. So we see in verses five through eight, "May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like grass upon the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand or the binder of his bosom. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. These are some harsh words here in verse five and six, seven, eight, and nine. And not, no, nine, only eight. May they be put to shame, verse five, and in that culture, shame was a huge disgrace. May they be like grass which withers and is useless. May may they be worthless people. And may they be denied the common greeting of others as you walk past one another. Don't even say hi to these people. Let them be off and gone, estranged from society. May society shame them. May they know a quick end. And may society shun them. And, And I say this, it's only right for the persecuted to pray this way. When people has sought your destruction, it's only right to desire their destruction. But, but notice here something carefully. You will search in vain for a personal vendetta in these verses against anyone. Here, here's the principle, Romans twelve nineteen. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It's interesting, I'm just thinking about this right now. I had an email exchange with someone this past week who forwarded to me on a news report about what's happening in Egypt. And um, in Egypt, you know, there's this uh, uprising and all those things. And many Christian churches have been sacked and destroyed. Um, Stuff in them burned out, looted. And and this this person was emailing me and basically saying, oh, look at how bad it's getting. And kind of I the heart was, oh, we need to fight against this. And when, they, when they, the news cameras came in there, and I don't know what kind of Christian, a Coptic Christian or, was, was in there, there was just this man, and he was quiet as can be, just sweeping the auditorium, just sweeping and cleaning up, hardly even saying a word. And I, I think some of that comes from understanding this, is that, that our Savior was a, a crucified, suffering Savior. And so what have we been called to? We've been called to this church being destroyed. we just They destroy the church and we just calmly clean it back up again. They deface something and we just calmly clean it up again. That's what we're called to. As opposed to Islam, which is an honor religion, which is all about honoring Muhammad. So, when I think it was what, 2006, maybe 2007, when a Danish newspaper carried some cartoons of Muhammad. You know, the Muslim world was in an uproar because to... To even represent or deface Muhammad in any bad way is, oh, I've got to get him and I'm going to get after him. And you know that's how the Muslims are. They're going to get back. They're going to retaliate. They're going to they're gonna go. Christians have a different way of that. We dem- desire retaliation for sure, but we're not going to seek it ourselves. Because God says, vengeance is mine, I'll repay. And the man who was sweeping out that church building wasn't seeking his own vengeance, as the Muslims do but rather seeking the road of Calvary, the the crucified road that would just clean up and trust that God will tear the cords of the wicked into like verse 4 says. doesn't mean we ought not to pray even these prayers though. But Paul said in Romans chapter 13, after quoting Vengeance is Mine, he described how the, the government's role is to carry out justice. It's the government who's the minister of good to you. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. It does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. See, it's the government that should execute the judgment. Don't retaliate yourself. Trust the government to do that. And seek the government to do that. And I think that's what's going on here in this psalm. It's a general prayer against, verse 5, all who hate Zion, against all who hate the people of God, all who hate God. I hate the people of God. It's a prayer that God, the highest court, would set matters straight. Shame them, shun them, shorten their life. In many ways, it comes back to verse 4. The Lord is righteous. God's justice demands that evil will be punished. And we have to rejoice when wickedness is punished. We have to rejoice when, verse 4, God has cut into the cords of the wicked. Because when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, people groan. It's bad when the wicked are in power. Now, one of the things that was interesting as I read Sabrina Wurmbrand's book, how utterly devoid of vengeance it was. Now, to be sure, there's pain, there is hatred, there is fear and disdain. And certainly she fought for what was right, she stood her ground, she she resisted where appropriate, and she rejoiced when evils were punished. But after all her experiences and, and all her husband experience, they, they devoted their lives to making known the persecution of the church. Which is a way to help get at get at things. But there was very little by way of Psalm 129 prayers, very little of of vendetta prayers, after three years of hard labor, even her husband more than a decade in prison with with torture, she didn't speak in the psalm one hundred twenty nine way though I think she believed it and the closest you get in this book is when she deals with bitterness in her heart to fellow believers who betrayed her husband to touching to touching passage when she had a pastor who betrayed her husband. There was bitterness. And the book is very real. She's very transparent. She said, There was bitterness in my heart. I knew that pastors and friends and even a bishop had some guilt for Richard's arrest. They loved themselves more than the principles they preached. I fought with myself, feeling hatred enter me toward those who had taken my husband and so many husbands. I prayed, but... I could not find peace. There's justice welling up within her, and, and rightly so. And then a friend of hers cut out from somewhere a picture of Christ on the cross by one of the Italian masters, and often my eyes strayed to where it was pinned on the attic wall, because by the time she got out of prison, she was just living in this small attic, barely enough room for she and her husband, she and her, her son, uh, though often others would stay with her. It's another thing. We have so much. She had so little. She gave so much. We give so little. And each time I remembered his last words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And also I thirst. And how the betrayers thirsted for forgiveness. So, those Christians would would come and just long, for which I would not give them, which in my bitterness I withheld. And with that thought, something changed me. I, I knew that even... For saints, a time may come when self-love is stronger than love of God. The Lutheran Bishop Mueller, a good friend, used to say that those whom others call a traitor might be seen by God as a weak saint. He said it, not minding at all that others might consider him a weak bishop for this, and I resolved to give love and expect nothing in return. Now, that's not to at all condone traitorous Life or actions. In fact, I would say, church family, strive with all your heart never to be a traitor. Never be a coward. But it does say something about how she just kind of gave it to the Lord. Said, God, You know. It's a traitor or a coward. Someone who's weak? How is it? But she resolved to give love and expect nothing in return. And and perhaps... Verses five through eight might be fitting there because it's a prayer to God. God, I'm giving love to people, but you're the one who's going to deal with all the vengeance in the end, because she, Sabina, left room for the wrath of God. In fact, totally got out of the way, and God will always do what's right. And so I just say, trust Him to do what is right. So let's just step back from Psalm 129 and, and let's remember our troubles. Let's remember the troubles of a woman like Sabina Wormbrand, and let's remember how faithful. God has always been to carry Israel through her troubles, to carry Christians through their troubles, to carry us through our troubles. And realize that as we come to worship each week, this is a psalm of ascent. This is a psalm to prepare us for worship. There is something about thinking of the persecution, the difficulty that others experience, that we have experienced, that we have conquered through by God's grace that will enable and in charge and energize our worship. Psalm 134 is where we'll be next week. Behold, bless the Lord, all servants of the Lord, who serve by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the sanctuary and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, He who made heaven and earth. It's where these Psalms of ascents are ending. Thinking about persecution, remembering our troubles, is just one step to the end of great praise to God. Let's pray. Father, first of all, I am thankful that we have not had to go through what Sabina Wormbrand has gone through. Although I am touched by a passage in this book when she laid her head on her pillow at night, thinking about those in the West who were not suffering, thinking what they were experiencing hoping and expecting that they were praying for her because she said that she was praying for them. And Father, I pray that we as a church would remember the persecuted church. That we would do what we can to help. It's hard to help a prisoner in a foreign land, to be sure. It's hard to help those in persecuted lands, to be sure. And yet, may we be a, a church family and body who can do and support what we can. I, I thank You that even recently we have contributed to a, a farms project in Laos. We we can't go there, God, but You have given us means to support some Christians there who are facing some difficulties. And we'll have more information about that in weeks to come. More, I don't even know much about it yet. But Lord, would pray that You'd put on our hearts those who are persecuted. May we pray for them. God, pray for the, the Christians in other lands who are facing hardships. And I, I pray, God, You'd sustain them just as You sustained Sabrina Wormbrand. I pray that You would sustain them. I pray that You would help them. Uh, I pray that they would find Christ as all and all that's needed and necessary. And give us a heart for these people. And may, Lord, You rejuvenate our worship as we think about all the joys that we ought to have that we don't face these sorts of troubles and trials in our own life. And the troubles and trials that we have faced that You have been faithful and gracious to bring us through, may those stir us Sunday by Sunday to come into this place to give You great honor and glory. And it is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.